reading from Scripture today will be from Luke chapter 5, verses 27 to 39. So you could turn there in your Bibles, you can look on the screen, and I'll read for us from Luke chapter 5. After this, he went out, Jesus, and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. This is God's good word for us. Thanks be to God. So we continue our study of the Gospel of Luke through the season of Lent, which is a 40-day season of heart preparation marked by prayer and repentance leading up to the great celebration of Easter. And just a reminder of a few things that Larry mentioned last week, uh, Lenten prayer, we will have every Sunday evening during the season of Lent right here, six o'clock. Uh, we're posting daily prayers of confession on our Instagram. Uh, and many of us are reading together a brief daily devotional called To Seek and to Save by Sinclair Ferguson, short daily reflection meditations uh, leading up to Easter. And it's not too late to jump in. You know, they're very short. So if you had to, you know, binge read uh, quite a few of those to get caught up, you're only like, you know, 10 or 11 days into Lent. You could totally catch up. So, uh, but this section of Luke's gospel that we're in during Lent, chapters five through seven, uh, contains some really good material for the season of Lent. We're gonna see Jesus, or we've already seen him, call his first disciples, and then he's gonna teach them what it means to follow him. So we can learn, too, to follow Jesus through the season of, of Lent in these chapters in particular. I, I think I mentioned recently that our staff has been taking some personality tests uh, and discussing them with each other as a way of talking about our strengths and weaknesses and how we function as a team in the workplace, and each personality profile that we're working through on this website we're using, which is more or less based on the Myers-Briggs personality types, uh, each personality profile comes with its own moniker or name, like the architect or the command, that's not the architect, that's the architect, yeah, it's like, you're like, that doesn't match the photo. So the architect, uh, the commander, the mediator, the adventurer, there's the commander, there's the mediator, uh, as, as a way of describing and understanding that person and their personality. 
In this passage, Jesus is going to give us two monikers or two labels for how we should understand Him, two descriptions for how He would like to be understood. Did you see what they were when we read through the, the passage? If you're going to follow Jesus, you should know, you should at least know who you're following, what He's like. You don't want to misunderstand Him lest you end up following a distorted version or a different Jesus altogether. Jesus describes himself in this interchange as a doctor, a physician. You could call him the physician. And secondly, he describes himself as a groom, a new husband, a bridegroom. So a doctor and a groom. And both of these pictures of Jesus have great implications for how we understand him and how we follow him. So let's pray and we'll look at each. So Lord, as we turn to these words uh, of yours, would you help us to see you as you are, that we would follow you and love you as we should. Amen. So back to verse 27 of chapter five. So after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Now, Jesus choosing to call Levi, whom the other gospels will identify as Matthew, sets the stage for the rest of our story because it's a pretty bold move to ask a tax collector to join his band of disciples. I imagine tax collectors have never in any culture been terribly popular. IRS agents, anyone? Just kidding, you do not have to raise your hand. Just stay incognito, especially this time of year. Uh, But in this day and age, in Jesus' day and age, they were especially despised. Uh, Tax collectors were essentially employees of the Roman Empire, so they represented the man, the system, everything that was oppressive uh, in Israel. They were considered traitors. You would not like them. And many of them probably were callous and greedy people making a living living off of the oppression of their own people. So Professor James Edwards says that tax collectors were lumped in with thieves and murderers socially. They were considered a disgrace to their family and usually shunned. Uh, They were excluded from the synagogues, could not attend, and they were disqualified as witnesses in Jewish court. Uh, Jewish people could not receive money from tax collectors, even as a gift. You know, alms or an offering, you, you did not want to receive money from a tax collector. And they thought at the time that it was perfectly acceptable to lie to a tax collector with impunity. Even the rabbis who disagreed on various matters of theology, like the resurrection, all agreed, you can lie to a tax collector. <laughs> and then Jesus goes and calls one of them to join his band of disciples. And it says that he saw Levi and called him. Do you see that in the passage? He saw him and called him. He didn't just look at Levi's reputation or his position. He saw him, the man, Levi, and he called him. And Levi responded, Just like all the other disciples that Jesus called a few verses earlier in verse 11 in the same chapter, Luke tells us that Levi also got up and left everything and follows Jesus. 
And I think if there's anything that we should learn here, it's that the call of Jesus is strong enough to cause anyone, the least likely, the most wicked, the most hardened person to stand up, leave it all behind, and follow Jesus. Do not write anyone off from the powerful call of Jesus. J.C. Ryle said, we must never despair of anyone's salvation so long as he lives after reading a case like this. We must never say of anyone that he's too wicked or too hardened or too worldly to be saved. No sins are too many or too bad to be forgiven. No heart is too hard or too worldly to be changed. He who called Levi still lives with Christ. Nothing is impossible. And I think you can also apply this personally as well. I mean, do you ever despair that you will never really be able to measure up as a Christian, never really be able to follow Christ, leave yourself behind? It's just too hard of a road to walk, you might think. But if the call of Jesus was strong enough to start you on this journey, it'll see you to the end. He who calls Levi still lives. Now, Levi responds to Jesus with gladness, it seems, because he hosts a big party at his house uh, for Jesus, along with his disciples, and Levi's own friends are there too, which, not surprisingly, are other tax collectors. That's probably all the friends that they had, was each other. So verse 29 says, and Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So here's the first of those two labels that Jesus gives himself in our passage, a doctor. And I think this, this title actually has pretty big implications for how you understand Jesus and how we follow him. First, I think it shows us that Jesus came to cure us, not just reform us. His mission was not one of self-improvement, but of a rescue, of a treatment, of a cure, of outside intervention. This implies that humanity, you, me, we are in need of more than just a little guidance or some education, or a nudge in the right direction. We need outside help. We need intervention. And this is really the first step in becoming a follower of Jesus, recognizing that you are spiritually sick and you need a doctor. When Jesus says he didn't come for the righteous, but for sinners, he's not saying, well, there are some righteous people out there that don't really need me. Don't worry about them, they'll be fine. But there are only some that will recognize their need. Because you can be deathly sick and not know it until some routine blood work comes back or a subsequent scan shows some things that you had no idea about. Just because you don't feel sick doesn't mean that you aren't. But let's be honest, it's usually not until you feel pretty sick that you're willing to do something about it go see a doctor. 
And this is the starting point for Christianity. As C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity, Christianity tells people to repent and promises them forgiveness. It therefore has nothing, as far as I know, to say to people who do not know that they'd have done anything to repent of and who do not feel that they need any forgiveness. It's after you've realized that there is a real moral law and a power behind the law that you've broken that law and put yourself wrong with that power. It is after this, not a moment sooner, that Christianity begins to talk. When you know you are sick, you will listen to the doctor. When you've realized that our position is nearly desperate, you will begin to understand what Christians are talking about. And I'm not sure we can appreciate the beauty of the cure of God's grace expressed to us through the cross of Christ until you felt the sting of the diagnosis of sin. I mean, this is why maybe so many of you can sit in church for years and years and years and even walk through a season like Lent over and over, but never really taste the sweetness of the gospel and the magnitude of God's love expressed to you on the cross because you've never really faced up to the bitterness of your own diagnosis. You don't feel that you really have all that much to repent of. Uh, you're not half as bad as so-and-so over there, at least. So you don't feel much need to change, so you don't feel your need for God's help, and so you don't have much appetite for grace. But the message of the gospel, as Jesus describes, is that you are far worse off than you've realized, and you need a doctor. The good news is, he is one. And this is hard news, but if you know you are sick, if you know you are sick, then this is great news. Because like a doctor, Jesus moves towards us in our soul sickness. That's another big part, I think, of understanding Jesus as a doctor, is that he's a good doctor. And it's not just that you have a bad condition, it's that he has incredible compassion for you. He doesn't recoil from us or isolate from us. He's a traveling doctor who comes to us. He seeks us out and offers us healing. Jesus is not the kind of doctor who's so busy and fact-oriented that they get you in their office, they write you a script, and send you out as soon as possible because they have so many patients to see because of medical insurance and yada, yada, yada. He's moved by our sins. He's moved by our infirmities. As Thomas Goodwin wrote, your very sins move him to pity more than anger. Yes, his pity is increased the more towards you, even as the heart of a father is to a child that has some loathsome disease. His hatred shall all fall, and that only upon the sin, to free you of it by its ruin and destruction, but his heart shall be the more drawn out to you. And this is much when you lie under sin as under any other affliction. Jesus is like a doctor who's full of compassion. And not just compassion, but also skill, the skill to deal with us in our sin. He longs to free us from our sin, and he actually can do it. By his own wounds, our wounds will be healed. He can do that. When you're sick, you don't go see a car mechanic. You don't go see a financial planner, as helpful as those people are. 
you go see a doctor. So will you accept Jesus' diagnosis of your condition that you need outside intervention? You can't just self-reform. And will you come to him? Give up your pretensions of spiritual health and righteousness. I think in church that can be one of the hardest places to do that. (laughs) Because in a religious environment like this, it's hard to admit we're actually sinners, turns out. I mean, if you're in a grow group here at Northwake, which I would strongly encourage you to be in one, but when you sit together, you know, for accountability times or soul care, whatever you call it, how hard is it for you to be vulnerable, honest about the struggles in your life? You see, in an economy where we value godliness and morality, it can be hard to admit inner poverty. But that's the starting place for Christianity. I'm broke and I need help. I'm sick and I need healing. And that's what it means for Jesus to be our doctor. And that means you can be a patient. That's good news. Now, there's just one more point of application that I wanna make from this section before we move on to the next. And that notice, it's not just Jesus who's reviled for associating with tax collectors and sinners. It's also his disciples. Did you notice the Pharisees complain to his disciples first in verse 30? They say, why do you, why do you guys, eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And eating and drinking with someone was associated, was, it was associating with them at a level that seemed to imply your acceptance of them. And the religious leaders have a big problem with this. These people are sinners. But in order to call sinners to repentance, Jesus needed to be with them. He needed his disciples to be with them. Now, in my admittedly limited experience, I've observed that Christians are usually good at one of these two things, but not both. There are Christians who tend to be good at genuinely befriending those who are outside the faith, getting to know them, caring for them, but they struggle to honestly and kindly challenge their non-Christian friends to leave their sin behind and embrace Christ. Other Christians tend to be very clear with others about the need for repentance and faith in Christ, but they rarely make and sustain any real non-Christian friendships. Their evangelism is kind of a drive-by evangelism. They don't really take the time to eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners and genuinely associate with those who are outside the faith. But Jesus does both. He does both. And he calls his disciples to eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners, to welcome them that they might call them to repentance. Which of these two do you tend towards? Some of you would rather be caught dead than fraternizing with whatever the modern version of tax collectors and sinners are. You would. And some of you would rather roll over dead than have to verbally share the gospel message with your non-Christian friends. But neither of these are the way of Christ. So where must you seek to grow as you follow Jesus? Jesus. 
the good doctor. Second, uh, let's look at verses 33 and onward. Jesus gives us a new label for himself. They said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. So not only does Jesus call himself a good doctor, but also compares himself to a glad bridegroom, a new husband at a wedding party. Now, interestingly, the Old Testament uh, doesn't really use the metaphor of husband for the Messiah, but will often use marriage imagery to describe God's relationship to Israel, which makes Jesus' statement all the more provocative. I mean, who is he to call himself the bridegroom of Israel? But he does. And it's a beautiful portrait of Jesus, I think. Um, it shows how deep his affection and his great pleasure in his people is, the church. It shows how emotionally connected he is to his people. It's not merely a lord and servant arrangement or king and vassal, but groom and bride. Calling himself a bridegroom says, says a lot about Jesus. And so he tells the inquiring Pharisees when they ask about his disciples not fasting as much as their disciples did or John the Baptist's disciples. He said, well, you know, it's not really time for my disciples to fast. Are you supposed to fast at a wedding reception? No. I mean, there's like two things people look forward to at weddings, right? Seeing the bride walk down the aisle and the food. Would you like chicken or steak? No, thanks. I'm fasting. You know. How about a piece of wedding cake? No, 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 no. I'm fasting today. <laughs> well, you came to the wrong event. It's a wedding. It's not time to abstain. It's time to celebrate. And Jesus is saying something profound about who he is. This is an essential feature of his presence. Joy. The blessings of the divine kingdom he was bringing to men, he could compare to nothing so much as the festive joys of marriage. Himself and his disciples were like a wedding party. He was the bridegroom whose joy overflows into the hearts of his friends and turns fasting into feasting. He is the Lord of joy, and his crowning desire for his servants is that they may enter into the joy of their Lord and have it fulfilled in them. Robert Law writes in The Emotions of Jesus, and this tells us that, okay, yeah, following Jesus is serious, sacred business, yes, but it's not morose. If we take our cues from Christ, we cannot miss how central joy was to his person and to his mission. We often think of the season of Lent as a serious, somber time for self-examination, and it is, and it should be but it's not meant to end there. The season of Lent ends at Easter, which you can tell by the song selection, Daniel's already ready for. He's trying to get us there. Yeah. And that's good, because the church always considered Sundays during the season of Lent like many Easter's that point us forward. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> where point us forward to the day where fasting is broken and feasting begins forever and ever. Joy is the end game 
of Christianity. And so when Christ is here, he says we can't fast. It's, it's time to feast. Right now, we live in the in-between times where there's a time to fast because Jesus is not with us in person. But there's also a time to feast because he is with us by his spirit. And though Jesus not be with us in person, as First Peter says, though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So even as we continue in the 40 days of Lent together, don't forget the central place of joy in the life and person of Jesus. I mean, you know how, and let's be honest, when you see a text or a phone call come in on your phone from people on your contact list, you get more or less excited about that, depending on who they are. Sometimes you're just a little happier and more eager to open that text from some folks than from others because those people bring joy into your world. They bear good news, they light up your life, and you're glad to hear from them. What's your reaction when the name of Jesus pops up on your mind? When you think about meeting him in prayer, when you think about meeting him and reading the Bible, do you get a little hit of joy? Or is it kind of like, oh, roll the eyes. Okay, here we go. Yes, yes, I should pray, I should pray. Yes, I should read the Bible. I should, I should. Maybe we don't know Jesus' personality as well as we should because he's the kind of guy you really like to hear from. <laughs> he brings good news. He's the glad bridegroom. And that should shape how we feel about him when we hear from him. It's good to hear from Jesus, something you can look forward to something that can bring you joy. Now, Jesus adds to his statement uh, with this parable, verse 36. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. Now, what does Jesus mean? I think he's being deliberately vague at some level here, which is why it sounds so cryptic. He's not showing all his cards just yet. Plus, he's using illustrations that may not land as well today if you're not into sewing or winemaking, using goatskins as your fermenter. But essentially, the idea is, if you're not tracking with them, if you were to take a new pair of pants and cut them up to patch your old pair of pants, not only did you just ruin a new pair of pants, but it won't match your worn-out jeans that are already pre-shrunken. So that's just dumb. Similarly, if you use an old wineskin, which would be made from the neck leather of a sheep or a goat, according to people I read, again, it's not like I've done this, um, it's already been stretched to its limit. So if you store new wine in it, as it ferments, the skins have already stretched as far as they can go, and they'll burst, and you'll lose your really cool goatskin flask, and worst of all, you'll lose the wine that you worked so hard for. Maybe 
a way today to get after this concept is to say that you wouldn't try to load uh, iOS software on an old flip phone. Yes, I still have this. In one of my dresser drawers, Ashley dug it out for me this morning. <laughs> yes, still have the flip phone. These are just two different things. It's not gonna go together. They're not compatible. Now, Jesus is not knocking all things old or saying that every new innovation is good, but he is implying that he's doing something new in the world, in redemptive history. What he's up to is not the same old, same old. He's bringing in God's kingdom in a whole new way of living and relating to God, and it's, it's not gonna fit the mold of the Jewish religious system that people knew. Everything's gonna change. And some of them will not like it. I think that's what he's getting after there when he says, and no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. They don't like this new thing, even though it was promised long ago. They're like little kids that don't wanna try a new food. They say they don't like it just because they've never tried it. They wanna stick with what's comfortable and predictable. Not that I've experienced this phenomenon in my parenting at all recently. Preaching is therapeutic like this, you know? I just share all of my problems with you publicly, but Jesus would bring about a radically different new thing to these people. No more temple, because he would be the one to mediate God's presence to them. No more sacrifices, because he would be the true sacrifice for their sins. No more priests, because he would be the high priest to represent all of us. No more laws written on tablets of stone because he would write them on new hearts that truly love God from the inside. Jesus was doing a new thing and he's still doing it today. The question is, will we join him in it and live like he's still doing this new amazing thing in the world today? The question is not whether disciples will, like sewing a new patch on an old garment or refilling an old container, make room for Jesus in their already full agendas and lives. The question is whether they will forsake business as usual and join the wedding celebration, whether they will become entirely new receptacles for the expanding fermentation of Jesus and the gospel in their lives. So are, are you simply trying to make room for Jesus? in your already full agenda in life these days. How will, how will I make time for Jesus? Trying to figure out where he fits in it all. That's admirable, but it's mistaken. We must learn to fit ourselves around Jesus and what he's doing in the world. So how should we respond to God's word today? I'd actually like to take the next few minutes for me to stop preaching and for you to reflect, for you to reflect back on this passage. If you have the scripture passage handy, you might look at it in your Bibles or uh, on your device. And think about Jesus as the good physician, the glad bridegroom. You may not always Think about joy when you go to the doctor, but with Jesus, you should. Look back over this passage and consider, is Jesus pressing you to be more honest about your sinful condition? 
so that you might truly experience his grace. Or maybe consider if Jesus is calling you to follow him in eating and drinking with whatever version of tax collectors and sinners you have in your mind, in your life, so that you might call them to repentance. Maybe from this passage, Jesus is calling you to see him as the happy bridegroom that you look forward to being with each day rather than a grumpy God who demands your time. Maybe Jesus is calling you today to try to stop trying to fit your life, him into your life and rather sort your life around him how you can fit into his good work in the world. Maybe there's something else that you should stop and consider from that passage. If so, just take the next few moments to reflect on God's word and ask for his help in how to respond. And after just a few brief moments of silence, I'll come back up and lead us in a corporate confession of sin and prepare us to take the Lord's Supper together.